0: Anxiety and depression, along with the social stigma they carry, continue to vex and plague the nation. Many needlessly suffer in silence. America and countries around the world need to engage in a different kind of conversation about mental health. Former CBS and ABC News journalist Jane Clayson Johnson shares her personal experience and critical insight from her book, Silent Souls Weeping, Depression, Sharing Stories, Finding Hope, on this episode of Therefore What? Therefore, what is a weekly podcast that breaks down the news while breaking down barriers, challenges you in the status quo, explores timely topics and timeless principles and leaves you confident to face what's next. I'm Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News, and this is Therefore, what we are very pleased today to be joined by Jane Clayson Johnson and. really looking forward to this conversation that is one of those critical conversations I think we need to have around the country and around our dinner tables. Uh, Jane, thanks for joining us today.
1: Oh, Thanks so much for having me, Boyd. I really appreciate it.
0: Well, I, this is such a, an important topic and we often talk on this show about the need for courageous vulnerability, for that mm. willingness to go beyond kind of our superficial. I know this was a a book that you didn't plan on reading, and I, I think it required a great deal of courageous vulnerability, even to to begin it. Tell, tell us about that.
1: No, that's exactly right. I like that phrase, courageous vulnerability. You know, this is not a book I ever expected to write. Um, I had never really experienced depression until it sort of hit me uh, like a freak. Train, if you will, and after I had uh, you know had a long, difficult journey and had come out of it, I started talking with people and realizing how widespread the problem is and 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 more importantly, how many people are suffering in silence. Mm-hmm not talking about it, not sharing their experience for a variety of reasons. And I decided to that I wanted to do something about that. Um, it is a very vulnerable place to be, to tell your story, to share it uh, with others. But I felt like I could uh, maybe help some people. And so that's why I wrote this book. Oh,
0: I, it's, it's such an important uh, topic there. One of the things that I, I love that you address is just how this kind of uh, pain and suffering is, is so isolating. Uh, I think we often forget get that uh, we do sort of live in this lonely crowd uh, mm-hmm. especially with those that are that are Dealing, as you said, silently uh, with this, and whether it's it's emotional pain or physical pain, uh, there is an element to that kind of suffering that really does isolate you and creates all kinds of problems.
1: That's exactly right. I mean, if there's anything I've learned over the three years that I worked on this book, interviewing more than 150 people across the country, um, it is that we must reach out and we must help each other and share our stories because so many people are struggling in silence. I I think, to me, the worst part of depression is the isolation that it brings, um, not just from family and friends, but from community, from, from our church, even from our God. And I think that through the power of story, the dialogue can be opened and renewed and extended, and we can have a new level of honesty and authenticity and hope. For those who suffer. I mean, I have to tell you, I heard so many times I've never talked about this with anyone, or my parents don't even know this, or I can't believe I'm telling you this. So you know, let's let's shine some light on this. One of the great quotes that I heard from one of the many people that I interviewed for my book was, "Depression thrives in secrecy, but shrinks in empathy. Depression thrives in secrecy but shrinks in empathy. So let's have empathy with each other. Um, let's talk about our short stories, share our experiences so that we can help those that are struggling. Uh,
0: I, I love that in sharing those stories, uh, I love that shrinking in empathy. That's uh, that's such a great term. Uh, and and I think it's part of this idea that we, we have to start getting comfortable having uncomfortable conversations uh, mm-hmm. about a host mm-hmm. of things. As you had the, the chance to interview, again, uh, over 150 people across the country, How were you able to get them to get comfortable uh, having that uncomfortable conversation?
1: Well, it's funny, you know, I... uh this was a journalistic exercise for me i mean i have been a journalist for 25 years and when i decided i was going to write this book i wanted to hear from i wanted to hear people's experiences i wanted to hear others from others and so when i would call someone that i didn't know out of the blue and explain to them what my project was and explain to them a little bit of my own experience i think they heard that what i was doing here was going to be an authentic representation of what depression is this is not a sugar coated Portrayal of this disease, this illness, and so I think that they trusted that I had been through it, that I knew what I was talking about, and that I was going to portray their experience, um, in a very, um, authentic manner. So, you know, it was surprising. I, I certainly interviewed people that I know and have known for a long time, but I interviewed many people that i don 't know and didn 't know, um, and people started calling me in the middle of this project Boyd because they had heard that I was working on this and they wanted to share their own experience with me so that was really striking, and I think you know people wanted their difficult experiences to be validated. Mm. They wanted to share it with somebody else so that it could help um, another who was suffering. So yeah, it was, um, it was an incredible experience actually, hearing all of this, and I felt tremendous vulnerability and responsibility yeah. um, for the experiences that I heard.
0: Uh, we'll come back to this a little later on, but I, I, just while we're hot on this portion, what are some things that we should all be thinking about uh, in terms of people we interact with every day, in terms of creating space for that uncomfortable conversation or that moment of courageous vulnerability to happen.
1: So, you know, one thing that's really um, busted the stigma in my mind in some of the conversations that I have had is to start talking about brain health, not just mental health, yes. but. Brain health. The brain is another organ of the body. You know, there's nothing special or different. It's, a, it's brain health. And, and brain health is just as important as, say, heart health, which we're also, um, you know, fast uh, to talk about and to be concerned about. So I talk about brain health just in a very um, straightforward manner, and I think that, that I have found that that kind of helps people kind of lower the stigma a little bit. I mean, I think more often than not, we just have to dive right into our stories. I think we have to feel vulnerable enough and we have to feel open enough to just share what we've been through. You know, and it's not just those who are experiencing depression. It's those who have lived with someone who has experienced depression. That's a story too. And I tell that in the book. I tell my husband's story about you know, going through my experience with me, and I hadn't really understood how much frustration and pain and loneliness and even anger there is attached to the experience of living with someone who is depressed. So no matter the perspective that you have on this, I think just opening up and start talking about it is, the, is a really good first step, because you know what? Everyone has a story. I gave a speech the other night, Boyd, and I asked folks if they, at the very beginning of my speech, if they would stand up if they or someone that they know or love has experienced depression. And I thought maybe mm, 50, 60% of the room would stand. 90% of that room was standing. So, you know, it's a prevalent issue. It's a widespread problem. And I think just sharing our stories uh, will be a good first step. Toward yeah. encouraging
0: others to share theirs. Yeah! Wow, that's stunning. That's, that's also a good way to get a standing ovation right off the. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I, hadn't, I hadn't thought of that. That's a, that's genius <laughs> on your part. Uh, but it's also it's oh, also so line. it's so enveloping though that it does immediately. I mean, talk about breaking down the stigma uh, right. for for that audience to immediately look around and say Wh- whether they are the person suffering or. I-, I love that you bring out those that live with someone or love. someone someone that is suffering uh, that is right. also can be very isolating so i love that you you attack that uh, i want to drill down for a minute on uh, what i think is is such an important concept that you drive jane and that is that that depression is not a a character flaw it's not a fatal moral flaw uh, it, right. it just is tell us a little bit more about that
1: well from the many people that i've interviewed for this book you know i heard over and over again the embarrassment or shame attached to not only a mental health diagnosis but to the medication prescribed or the therapy required for treatment. I mean I think our historical misconceptions have led us to a very judgmental view of depression mm-hmm. and whether this stigma is self-induced or culturally imposed it's really unhealthy. And very unhelpful. You said it, you know, I I said this in the book, you know, um, depression is just like any other physical illness. It requires treatment. It is not the result of some sort of personal inadequacy. It's not a black mark on your character. Nobody thinks that, you know, that um, battling cancer or diabetes or heart disease or any other serious illness is just a matter of pulling up your bootstraps and You know, going at it alone, you're not going to fix clinical depression with work and discipline. It requires treatment. And, you know, I'm not a doctor or an MD or a PhD, but I am a journalist. And I can tell you from the many, many people that have told me their stories, the one thing over and over that I heard was the stigma associated with with depression. And that's what I try and conquer um, in this book.
0: Mm, that's so good. And and I think because of that stigma, I think that does cause so many people to, to I always call it just, you know, trying to to white knuckle your way through it to just, you know, say, right. oh, it's just me, or I just got to be right. tougher. Or I got to pull up my, 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 my bootstraps. Uh, but that really just compounds the problem in the end, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, I... <laughs> I think about so many of the people that I interviewed. One woman telling me that she, you know, had tried to talk to her father about her feelings of depression and anxiety, and her father just told her to, you know, put that all in a box. That's what he said. Put that all in a box. <laughs> put it out put with the trash. On it yeah. And just ignore it. You know, I mean, I, I cannot stress enough. Depression requires treatment, and treatment works. Yeah. Treatment works. If you have heart disease, you go to the cardiologist. If you have diabetes, you take insulin. If you break your arm, you get a cast, you know, and sometimes you have physical therapy. Same with depression. It's the same, same thing. It requires treatment. I loved a a woman who told me, too bad you can't wear a cast on your head because something is broken in there. (laughs) And that's really hard for people to understand. So, you know, thank you for inviting me on to talk about this. We've got to change the narrative about depression. We've got to end the isolation and potentially dangerous stigma that's attached to depression. Yeah,
0: and I I think so much of that happens in our homes and around our kitchen tables and even around the water cooler and and, uh, lunch breaks. I think the conversation again we're we're not courageously vulnerable, uh, and so we do often just say, "Oh, you'll get over it, or this'll pass, or you'll be okay." Just you know, tough it out a little longer. And, and instead of really modeling the behavior, I think of how many times with my kids, I just told them to you know buck up and and it'll be okay. When I could have shown some empathy and said, "Well, man, you know, I I had to deal with this with my boss today, and when we were done, I wanted to go curl up under my desk and you know mm-hmm. and hide mm-hmm. out." To, to say, I, mm-hmm. I get it, I understand, uh, but that requires us to model behavior in a different way as well.
1: That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Empathy empathy let's have more empathy and you know it makes me think about the byproducts that are attached to depression too you know it's not just suffering from depression but the stigma and shame and some of the embarrassment from you know missing a semester of school yeah. because you've been hospitalized or been in your room <laughs> because you can't come out because yeah. of depression because of a depressive episode you're out of step socially or employment wise i mean so many people i spoke with blamed themselves for right their depression. Can you imagine if we blame somebody for having cancer or for having heart disease or if we blamed ourselves, you know, for that? So again, I I, I think the empathy here is what I was trying to get to in this book, because if we can start telling our stories, start opening up about this, start having empathy for others who are suffering, um, you know, that's a good first step toward changing the dialogue about this.
0: I want to shift now to uh, this this idea of toxic perfection. Uh, and in particular, I love that you said in the in the beginning how sometimes we we isolate ourselves from God as well in this mm-hmm. process. Uh, and while the the gospel is is surely not to be a you know guilt producing or creating feelings of less than, uh, which I think is where we go. Uh, I think so many people saw you for so many years uh, yeah. as you know just the perfect, put together, everything's rolling right, you're on national TV, you're interviewing world leaders, uh, and and yet dealing with all of these things. Uh, and I think we struggle, I think particularly in religious communities, of viewing life through comparison, uh, which we know is always fatal vision. Um, but tell us your experience around kind of that comparison, perfection, uh, and some of the challenges that come with that.
1: Well, I, in the book, I write an entire chapter on toxic perfectionism as a contributor to depression. You know, let me start by saying I'm a recovering perfectionist. so (laughs) I completely um, understood and related to the many people, especially women, who talked to me about how um, important it was to them, how they look, or how their children look, or how they teach a lesson in church on Sunday, or how their home appears to others. You know, this, this notion of trying to be perfect in every way, to hold up a standard of perfection that is just not reasonable um, is detrimental to mental health. When you think about the scriptures and the scripture be therefore perfect, I, I think we put that scripture on steroids. That scripture in Matthew five. We yeah. see that word perfect in there, and we think, okay, I've got to be perfect. I have to be without flaw or mistake. And since I can't be perfect, I have to at least give the illusion right. that I'm perfect. When we're trying to live up to some unattainable standard, we're just not authentic. Yeah. We're just not authentic. And uh, you know, the Savior's plan, to my mind, is to work on the inside. Don't worry so much about the outside. Stop comparing ourselves and. Um, you know, and and just think about the the long term. It's really an important concept to try to internalize Mm -hmm. because toxic perfectionism is a contributor to... To detrimental health is also a contributor. I found a study from the American Psychological Association about the connection between toxic perfectionism and suicide. So, you know, it's something to really consider and think about and really consider why we're doing things um, and not be so perfect all the time. Be more authentic. Be yeah, more real. Definitely.
0: Definitely. Uh, you, you mentioned how uh, women tend to do this comparison thing, I, I think, far worse than than men do. And uh, as a guy who has seven sisters, a mother, a wife, and three daughters, um, <laughs> I've, I've, I've seen what that comparison, that fatal vision of comparison uh, can do in terms of just driving down uh, self-esteem and creating those feelings of being less than. Um, in, in your interviews with people across the country, were there any other things that Jumped out in terms of how do we get in front of that especially especially for our young women for our, our girls and teenagers who are you know faced with this constant barrage of perfection on facebook and and Instagram and social media channels how do we get out in front of that challenge
1: well it's a good point you know I mean I think this this notion of um, toxic perfectionism among our youth and among our young among our young women um, is really it's challenging uh, because we are putting up our, what we think is kind of our worst against what we envision everybody else's best to be. And so when we see everybody's shiniest and prettiest and best moments of their lives on social media, it's, it's really challenging. Um, I tell the story in the book about a project that I did with one of our children to help overcome anxiety, and it was the Authenticity Box Project um, A psychologist came in one day she was trying to help our child with some anxiety issues and she gave us um a box and some magazines and some scissors and tape. And she said, what I want you to do is I want you to cut out pictures and word descriptions that describe who you are on the outside. And I want you to tape all those pictures on the outside of the box. And that will be your image. That's who you portray yourself to the world. That's who you want people to see you as. And then on the inside of the box, I want you to tape pictures and word descriptions of who you really are when nobody else is watching, when nobody else is around. And so we finished this little project, and after the end of the hour, uh, with a lot of cutting and taping and talking, (laughs) we really understood this psychologist's lesson, which is that the more the outside of your box matches the inside of your box, the healthier your mental state, Hmm. right? The healthier you are, mentally when you're representing yourself as your authentic self and I think that's something it's a it's a very powerful exercise I've replicated it with book groups and yeah. youth groups and even a, a group at the Harvard Business School that I was speaking to on the topic of perfectionism it's it's so effective because you can immediately see what you're doing and and how you're portraying yourself so if we can teach that to our young women our young men too yes yes to be more authentic and be be more real, I think we'll all be better off. Oh,
0: that's a that's a great exercise, and uh, that will be happening around my dinner table tonight. Uh, that's a, <laughs> that is a that is a brilliant uh, brilliant concept. Great, great lesson there, uh, Jane. As we uh, as we roll forward here, I, just a couple other things that I, I want to make sure we we hit, and that is as you look at this uh, in terms of, of how do we move forward in this, in particular, uh, what role does does faith a play in all of this and our, our yes. divine identity. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought that up. I think it's a very important question because there were two themes that really rolled through every conversation that I had over the three years that I worked on on my book. The first was the stigma, which we talked about, the stigma associated with a mental health diagnosis. And the second is um, what depression does to feelings of the spirit and i think this is really really important um and to me really the most distressing part of depression why getting treatment is so critical for me depression blocked all feelings of the spirit but it, and it also blocked my sort of sense of my relationship with god and and for long stretches of time i couldn't feel anything i couldn't feel god's love it was like i was doing everything right i was praying and i was reading my scriptures and i was going to the temple but i didn't feel anything it was like the most important part of my soul had been cut out of me and i think many members of our church face this unique struggle because we're trying to fit a disease manifest through sorrow into a religion centered on a plan of happiness. Mm-hmm right? So when you grow up like I did, and I think many members of the church do, that if you're following the commandments and you're living by the Spirit and you're happy, then, you know, everything's great, and that's the way you should be living. And if you're dark and sad and not social or whatever, then you've done something wrong in your life and you need to repent, right? I mean, the scriptures teach us if there be no righteousness, there be no happiness, that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. But, but when you're depressed— It's very hard to feel the spirit. At least that's how I felt, and that's Mm -hmm. how many, 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 many people whom I've interviewed uh, described it. So listen to this and remember this, Boyd. Depression is a disease. It is not a spiritual deficit. Depression is a disease. It is not a spiritual deficit. You would not sit in the corner and pray your heart disease away. You would pray and you would go to the cardiologist. The same is true with depression. As I said in the beginning, the loss of the spirit is perhaps the most distressing part of of, of depression and why getting treatment is so critical.
0: Therefore what? Well, we're we're to the portion of the program now that we actually call "therefore what," <laughs> uh, and and sometimes I take this myself, and sometimes I let our guests uh, give us a "therefore what." And uh, I think you just gave us a, a really good insight. Uh, but I am going to give you one more bite at the apple. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, people have been listening for twenty minutes here. What, what's the "therefore what"? What do you hope people walk away after listening to this podcast thinking different, doing different? Uh, how do how do we march this thing forward?
1: Um, I think the most important thing that I learned over the course of um, of writing this book, Silent Souls Weeping, is that we have to reach out. We have to offer support and comfort and empathy to those who are struggling. There's so many people who are struggling in silence. And the minute we reach out and show a little vulnerability is the moment when true healing begins. Not just for the person who 's struggling, but for the person who 's reaching out too, I think it's um, it 's a very powerful thing you know I all my life, I wanted God to know that He could trust me, and I feel like this this experience with depression has given me a renewed sense of love and understanding, and I really feel like I have endured some of these things so that I can help others understand this terrible disease and strengthen their understanding of the atonement and what it means to go through this journey. I never thought I would say it, but I'm really grateful uh, for the journey through depression because it strengthened my understanding of grace. And I feel like I have a hope um, in the atonement um, that's brighter than I ever could have imagined. And so for that reason, I'm grateful for what I went through with depression, and I so hope that others will reach out to their family and friends, to those in their community that they know are suffering so that we can all feel that 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 love and that grace and that empathy and that hope.
0: Jane, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Boyd. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm really grateful for your interest in this and for giving me the opportunity to speak about it. Um, I, I really do. Thank you.
0: So important. Jane Clayson Johnson, the book is Silent Souls Weeping, Depression, Sharing Stories, Finding Hope. Uh, really a fantastic resource. Remember, after the story is told, after the principle is presented, after the discussion and debate have been had, the question for all of us is, therefore what? Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening today. And be sure to rate this episode and leave us a review. Follow us on DeseretNews.com slash TW and subscribe to our newsletter. This is Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News. Thanks for engaging with us on Therefore What?